Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Pam, I can understand your objection to wrestling, a girl with your background, gentle upbringing, but it's the only way we can raise money. No, it's not. Well, now, what do you think we ought to do that's fitting and proper? Rob a train. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. So, let's talk about women. <laughs> let's talk about makeup. Do you have any makeup tips for me? I do. The only makeup that I wear is eyeliner, actually, genuinely. So I can tell you how to do a good cat eye. And that's about it. I pretty much fall apart after that. So, Bart, you were like, we need another Jenna-centric episode. I said we need one of your crazy themes (laughs) for an episode. (laughs) Because they've all been a little too straightforward lately. So... I was like, okay, one of my favorite pastimes is laughing at inaccurate period drama costuming. Because usually it's more obvious by the costumes that the characters are wearing what decade the film was made in than what decade the story's meant to be in. And I love it. Mm -hmm. Usually it's the most egregious for like medieval dramas or like the sword and sandal fair. Or Cleopatra. Exactly. It's like the mid-century stuff is always very colorful and that polyester kind of looking. While like the 80s and 90s are full of like shiny metallics. Big hair. And like from 2000 and up, it just gets grayer and more drab as we go on. The past just gets drained of color. The same way that we look towards the future, which also looks like gray mush and a gray tin in a gray house and white walls you know what i mean we Mm -hmm. we love the past and the future in this modern time but yeah so like i especially love when you're watching a movie and it's clear that whoever was doing the costuming or the makeup just said fuck it and like threw in whatever the hell was in style at the time but like cut it just slightly differently so that it somehow is evocative of the era that it's meant to be taking place in Uh, Just enough that it can pass. But especially when you watch it taken out of that decade or even a couple years later and you look back and you're like, oh, my God, this (laughs) looks. (laughs) I have no idea what the subject of this episode is, but it sounds really (laughs) shallow to me. (laughs) So, look, you asked me for a Jenna centric episode. And so I decided (laughs) let's talk about eyeliner westerns. Which is, uh, mm-hmm. as it sounds, 1960s westerns that star women in full-on cat-eye makeup and trendy hairstyles, rough riding in the range and shooting guns. And funny enough, the list of movies that we pulled together for this also ended up being this like who's who of 1960s hotties, both in the physical sense and the trendy sense, in that these were all like big stars in the 60s. A bit of a who's who of... The most famous ladies. You definitely have a few bombshells here, like five out of seven total like 60s bombshells. And then the other two are like 50s holdovers. But we'll get into that. Still attractive, or at least known to be, have been in their time. Not really out of their time, except that, you know, women, the second they turn 30 or (laughs) throw them in the trash. I mean, come on. Nah, they have personalities. They're not sexy. They're virgins, but they're sexy. Virgins with children. <laughs> with multiple children and continually no sex. But yeah, you so you think it would be easy enough with a Western that people could just look like they were in a Western in the desert doing whatever. 
But there's always clearly like that producer somewhere thinking that nobody will watch it if it's too accurate or like, you know, it's oh, you got to make the clothing tighter and they got to look prettier. I need them to look sexier or else no no one's going to see this shit. That hair (laughs) must be bigger. (laughs) Which, of course, has the opposite effect of making you stop and think like, where the hell did she get that much makeup in the middle of this desert? (laughs) So that's it. That's my theme, is that I just wanted to laugh at a bunch of ridiculous costuming choices. And I don't know, I actually ended up getting a little bit more than I expected. But also, a lot of these movies kind of (laughs) sucked. They were bad movies. (laughs) Like, even the ones that I thought I liked, they're not that great. Cat Baloo, it's not as good as you remember it. I promise you. Yeah, but I guess let's start at the top here. We're going to start with second time around. Classic Debbie Reynolds, classic Andy Griffith, Steve Forrest, Juliet Prowse, Thelma Ritter. There, I just did the cast for you. 1961, directed by Vincent Sherman. And yeah, that's the cast, which is, you know, not that exciting for the 1961 even. Though Juliet Prowse, she's at least a bit of a who's who because she was dating Frank Sinatra and then Elvis. And she was a dancer, Mm. and she shows up in a handful of 60s films, so she's something. I heard that in in G.I. Blues, she and Elvis just had a lot of sex, and that was about it. They weren't really dating. Because she was dating Sinatra, and if anyone found out, he would have their legs broken. And he already hated Elvis, so there was already a bit of a drama there. And then later on, Sinatra sort of had to apologize to Elvis after he was in the army and then came back because he was such a big star. They had to have him on the Frank Sinatra show. And then later on, uh, Nancy Sinatra stars in a movie with Elvis and uh, gets to kiss her the whole time. So I think Elvis won that fight, but Sinatra got the girl. And then she broke up with him. I cannot wait to talk about Frank Sinatra later <laughs> in this episode. Because I I can't stand <laughs> that guy. I have so little patience for that bullshit. But go ahead. Second time around. I don't know. What is this movie about? It's about a, a widow who has kids and she leaves them behind. Just blatantly leaves them behind. In New York City, As she goes off to Arizona to become a ranch hand. Like that's her dream, right? I'm pretty sure like it's not much deeper than that. And this film is essentially an excuse to just abuse Debbie Reynolds, which (laughs) she gets thrown around a lot. She gets yelled at a lot and she falls in the mud a lot. And it's a lot of sort of slapstick humor. And then she gets a bunch of guys trying to marry her. Including lame-ass Andy Griffith. Super lame. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... He does have a reputation as a down-home, folky kind of southern charmer. But you don't want Debbie Reynolds to get with him. But you also don't want Debbie Reynolds to get with anybody because she's like this pure, goofy, virginal lady with two kids who she can't wait to get reunited with because her husband died and her 
mother-in-law is taking care of them and she goes to Arizona for, uh, you know, she becomes sheriff because the sheriff's a jerk. So they elect your sheriff. The sheriff thing is interesting, though. And this movie, I thought, actually could have been sort of good in a way because it ends with, as you mentioned, it, it's this whole thing about two guys fighting over her and they're both kind of trying to play her for a fool. And she basically is always more interested in bettering herself than she is in settling with any of them. So, yeah, she she sort of takes the high road, as it were. And then she ends up rallying the entire town's white women and Latino community in order to get elected as the sheriff, while, again, ignoring these two other men and making her own way. And then the second she becomes the sheriff, she puts the smackdown on everybody. And it's actually kind of glorious. It's actually, <laughs> like, kind of fun, even <laughs> though the movie is really not that great. Timothy Carey is in this as a bad guy. Oh, yeah. But she also, as soon, pretty much as soon as she becomes sheriff, she gets kidnapped by the previous sheriff. Right. Who's a bad guy. It doesn't really get anywhere that you want it to be, but it, I don't know. I thought this one, especially in comparison to the other films we watched, didn't so much undercut Debbie Reynolds in the end, even though the whole thing is a setup for trying to make her look like a fool. But she kind of overcomes it in the end, and she kind of does okay. So I was a little impressed with this. I expected it to be a little... This was definitely not the worst movie we watched. As far as being an eyeliner western, though, um, I mean, her outfit's super demure. Her her neck and her wrists are covered, and her hair is in an older style. And she almost has that, like, western twist on a Doris Day haircut. So in that sense, not a great eyeliner western even though her makeup and hair are always perfect throughout this entire thing even when she's completely covered in mud well we got to start somewhere obviously the beginnings of female protagonists in westerns is johnny guitar joan crawford in, in that film but that's more of a cult favorite that is more beloved now than it definitely was at the time and it took a little while for women to sort of ease their way into protagonist roles in Westerns. And this is sort of 1961. It's just sort of the beginnings of them trying to figure out how females fit into this legendary West that had sort of evolved in moviedom. She does get to become sheriff. She does get to fire a gun, hold a gun anyway. Does she even fire it? But yeah, it's pretty much traditional female role i guess she's definitely not sexed up the way a lot of these other ladies are in these later films we're going to talk about i mean there is like the saloon shot where juliet prowza is and you can sort of see the fact that she is in a very playboy-esque dress it's like the same shiny material of like the playboy bunny in the same cut, but it has a full skirt instead of being that bathing suit onesie. So you can definitely tell that this is a 60s Western, but I would say of all of these, I'm only going to give this one five out of 10 eyeliners. You can tell it's there, but it's not that distracting. There's clearly some, somebody said, you know, there's a lot of hubbub among the female community right now. Things are happening. Let's throw them a bone, but it's right. not much of a bone. Right. It's a literal bone. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike four for Texas. Oh, 
Ooh, we're moving on already to the absolute bottom of, of the heap with these movies. <laughs> this movie was a wretched piece of crap. Wish I never saw it. I hated it. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, bunch of creeps. It only takes two people to make a bunch of creeps. And these two guys, bunch of creeps. 1963. <laughs> Directed by Robert Aldrich, the famous Robert Aldrich. Did uh, Vera Cruz, Kiss Me Deadly, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Dirty Dozen. Yeah. The, the 60s wouldn't have been the 60s without Robert Aldrich, but he made a big mistake with this movie. <laughs> He knew it. He knew it. I, I can say that ha with all of the Dean Martin biographies that I have read, everything points to the fact that he hated Sinatra and he hated making this film. He thought it was a piece of crap before they ever started. And Sinatra, of course, in typical Sinatra fashion, mostly took on the film just because he wanted to shoot guns and hang out with his friends. His Essex Productions produced this with Dean Martin's Claude Productions. And it is a piece of crap. It's a total piece of crap. <laughs> and to your point, I actually didn't even rewatch it for this podcast because I remember when I brought it up, I was like, oh, I just watched that earlier this year. I'm pretty sure I watched it in January. And you were like, no, you watched it two years ago. <laughs> like your review is from two years ago. And I was like, oh, my God, it's it's still with me. But Speaking of Playboy, it's basically a Playboy magazine come to life, but with a slightly less nudity and far less articles. It is about uh, Sinatra. I don't know. He opens a, a showboat. No, Dean opens a, a showboat casino with Ursula yeah. Andres, who is in it. Another who's who hottie of the 60s. And Sinatra's pissed because it was his idea. And Anita Ekberg is there, another great hottie of the 60s. <laughs> and she wants to bone Sinatra. And then other people are pissed off for other reasons. And uh, Dean and Sinatra come to blows. And then they make up. Wow, you did a terrible job summarizing this film. <laughs> but I have no interest in fixing all your plot errors. Please do. There. You watched it more recently than I did. <laughs> yeah, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra are just like... At odds, they're both kind of good guys. Frank Sinatra kind of takes a backseat to Dean Martin in a way in this movie, but it doesn't help. This movie still sucks. <laughs> so go on. What? Well, tell us, Bart, what sucks about it? Besides the fact that you hate Sinatra. I didn't until I watched this movie. And then I thought, it's 2020. We have no room <laughs> in this world for people like Frank Sinatra anymore. Just leave him behind. Forget he ever existed. He's a thing of the past. We don't need him anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, I don't hate Sinatra, but I'm not a fan. Sometimes he has a really good song, but he's a little too showy for me. He's a little too, he loves himself a little bit too much for me. Yeah, he's a hell of a singer. <laughs> Dean Martin does the same thing and then undercuts it before you can and i appreciate that about dean martin but they're both pretty terrible i mean this whole film again i mean like there's sinatra basically has like a harem of maids who are all named fifi and wear these like frilly dresses that are cut so short that every time they bend over you can see their underwear and the camera of course is like you know zooms right on in <laughs> 
way up. All of the costuming is very boob forward, I would say, for the women in general. And uh, apparently also from what I have read, they were trying to push for some full frontal nudity and really go for that Playboy thing. But they got censored, alas. But they still had Ursula Andress in like a see-through negligee. And then there's this dumb nude painting of her that every man in the film is like ogling. And they sort of censor it with a hat. And then, like, later in the film, it's just in the background, and you're like, oh, there it is, you know? It's like... But you get some hilarious Three Stooges hijinks around this painting where they're, I don't even know, they stretch it out for, like, ten minutes about how they're delivering this painting of Ursula Andress nude to Dean Martin's showboat casino, and uh, it is terrible. Like, I've never been a Three Stooges fan but like Curly Joe era Three Stooges in cameos in Hollywood films that are trying to bring a little comedy. Oh, it's miserable. I have no explanation for the Three Stooges in this. They're just there. It makes absolutely no sense. It is, um, what's his name? Uh, Ernest Laszlo, who was the cinematographer on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And that also has a Three Stooges cameo that amounts to nothing. You think he's just bringing them every time he shoots them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a big name in cinematography. Like, he's a big Hollywood cinematographer, but I don't care about his work. He's just, like, bland, technicolor, studio-bound photography. That doesn't impress me much. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the women in this movie because that's what we're meant to be focusing on. And I will say that I really like the introduction of Ursula Andress where she gets this pretty badass scene where she's basically shooting people. (laughs) She just busts out like a shotgun and shoots all these dudes. And it's a really good opening. And you're actually like pumped to see what's going to happen with her. And it just dissolves. Like there's this awful, awful scene of dialogue between her and Dean Martin where he's talking about how... Wait, are you just one one awful scene of dialogue? Because I remember like (laughs) six or seven really terrible scenes of dialogue there's like two hours worth of terrible dialogue (laughs) but the there's this one scene where he's like saying you know you want me to be your lord and master and when i offer you an equal partnership and and she's like oh it's because that's how it should be between a man and a woman a man is a partner i don't understand but as a master him i know how to handle and you're like oh fuck <laughs> and then she like gives him a blowjob it's pretty terrible it's also in this awful looking gaudy red and black silk playboy canopy bed situation it's terrible it's really bad and anita ekberg of course barely gets anything i mean maybe there's some great role of hers out there but the best role i've ever seen her do is la dolce vita which isn't saying much because she's also just a beautiful woman <laughs> like that's yeah. kind of her role so she dances in a fountain in a low-cut dress right what what else is there to her in that movie so i mean she's essentially that person here and i barely remember her in this i don't know if you if she does anything intriguing that you can remember no she's entirely forgettable in this movie (laughs) ursula andrus on the other hand as one of the iconic buxom hotties of the 60s the bond bikini girl what's her name in dr no white bikini that's her name not pussy galore honey rider pussy galore is in a later movie we watch but yeah she actually she's got acting chops she's got a lot of charisma she's got personality She's very engaging in this movie, but what they give her to do and say is so appalling. 
they give her like hints of being a self-actualized woman and then she just sees Dean Martin and falls over herself to be his servant and like forces him to accept it (laughs) (laughs) so I think needless to say this is a eight out of ten eyeliners especially Ursula Andress they actually put Anita Eckberg in period costumes that maybe don't necessarily flatter her significant figure. But Ursula Andress's Max is definitely in outfits that don't fit the period whatsoever. They're just there to make her look like a Playboy centerfold. Well, between her and the maids. But I would say that my <laughs> eyeliner score is about the costuming and about the ridiculousness less than it is about empowerment. So I'm I'm going to stick with, I, you know, it could be like a seven. You know, it might be a seven out of ten. But uh, yeah. somewhere 7.5, let's say. Okay. I don't know if you have an eyeliner score. I have a girl power score, and it's about 1.5 in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Negative 1.5. <laughs> yeah, not a good one. Sorry. As much as I enjoy watching Dean Martin be an asshole, even I can't get behind this one. It's so sloppy. It also has some, like... There's some good character work from Charles Bronson and Victor Buono, and and they're like the bad guys. Oh, right. They're kind of fun, but it's kind of shoved to the side so we can just watch Frank and Dean be bros together. Yeah, giggle while they like forget the lines. And I think actually the worst offense here, besides the hardcore misogyny, (laughs) is the fact that they don't sing anything. And the music is by Nelson Riddle, too. They like completely... The uh, the the missed the boat as far as doing any singing because there isn't even like one corny song for them, which quite frankly would have been like the only moment of joy in what is an otherwise terrible film. So, Rat Pack and Robert Aldridge fans avoid this one. You might be tempted. Don't bother. <laughs> Unless you want to just look at some hotties, then fine. You got it. Not even. There's not even that much. There's not <laughs> enough. <laughs> Give me more hotties. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the next film, Cat Baloo. Killed a man in Wolf City, Wyoming. Wolf City, Wyoming. Killed a man, it's true. And that is why they were hanging, hanging Cat Baloo. She has the smile of an angel. Fights like the devil. 1965, directed by Elliot Silverstein. Cat Baloo, I'm, I'm a fan of. This is written by uh, Walter Newman, who worked on Ace in the Whole screenplay, and Frank Pearson, who wrote and directed 1978's King of the Gypsies, starring Eric Roberts. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's adapted. What? More... Did, did your mom have something to do with that movie? Is that <laughs> why you. <laughs> Just love Eric Roberts. Adapted by a novel by Roy Chancellor, who wrote the original Johnny Guitar novel. And. This is like the perfect time in the episode to foreshadow the fact that pretty much all of these movies end up being source material that seems serious and then gets completely undercut by quote unquote comedy <laughs> and then turning the women into the butt of the jokes on top of it. But I, I will say that I like Cat Blue and it made me laugh, but I'm kind of with you on that. It isn't that great of a movie, unfortunately. The comedy is actually most successful in this movie, 
of any of the movies, but it's still not great. There are two positives about this movie, and, and those are Nat King Cole and Stubby K. I love when they come in and narrate the film with their songs. The songs are really catchy. Yes. But otherwise, it's just kind of slapdash, kind of... Well, let's see, how how can we navigate this whole having a female as a Western hero sort of thing? And it just doesn't try that hard. And I love Lee Marvin, and he kind of sucks in this movie. This kid, Shalene, and his twin brother, Tim Strawn, who's the bad guy, and he ends up going head-to-head with him later in another slapdash scene. It's, it's just really carelessly put together. There's some good silent comedy-style slapstick in there, like some good energy in the action scenes, but I wish they tried harder. The singing narration is easily the absolute best part of this film, and it makes the entire movie, I think. Besides the fact that Jane Fonda is beautiful. <laughs> I'm more than happy to look at Jane Fonda because she's like a perfect person, but... Yeah, I mean, I love, like, the introduction of Lee Marvin, and you're expecting some badass gunslinger, and he's uh, this complete drunk hobo. And then you have the narration, the look of a killer, that man was a devil, and he's, like, drunk on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) The face of a killer. Yeah, I mean, so this, uh, the the plot, uh, I don't know if we have to even say the plot in the sense that Cat Blue is, like, one of these movies that's permanently on non-cable television and you can almost constantly tune into it whenever you turn the TV on in my life. Everybody should see this movie. It deserves the attention, but it's also not quite as good as it should be, unfortunately. It's an Academy Award winning film. For what? For lead Marvin. Best actor. Best lead actor? I guess. He's not even really a lead. (laughs) As our leads, we have two totally interchangeable TV actors that I can never remember which one is Clay Boone, the love interest, and which one is his Uncle Jed, because they both look exactly the same and they have no charisma, and it's just like, who, why would you, okay, Cat, you could go ahead, I know you're going to end up with one of these guys, I forget which one is which, but one of them (laughs) is the younger one that maybe is a little sexier or something, but go ahead. Who cares? Kapaloo arrives home <laughs> at her father's ranch and realizes that the whole city has been scheming to kill him and take his ranch from him. The only person who will defend him is his cowhand, a Native American kid named Jackson Two Bears who has a haircut like the Beatles. And Clay and Jed sort of show up these dudes to... She, like, hires them, and then she calls upon this legendary gunfighter kid, Shaleen, who is Lee Marvin, as we said, and he shows up. He's a total drunk loser. And eventually her father gets killed because all of these guys are horrible and they suck. And then it's up to her to sort of go back and get justice for her dad and kill the men who killed her father. And so the plot, as you can kind of tell from the fact that it was written by the guy that wrote Johnny Guitar, the plot's pretty serious and pretty dark. And the movie keeps a lot of those dark plot points, but it's constantly punched up by that singing narration, which is always funny and genuinely good. And then these like weird little jokes about like the father thinking that the Sioux Indians are the lost tribe of Israel or like Lee Marvin being drunk and belligerent or uh, everyone laughing at Jane Fonda for trying to like 
stand up for her rights kind of stuff. There's definitely some version of liberalism going on in this movie, but it doesn't try all that hard. It's like, okay, here's some talking points, but it's sort of a satire of Westerns in a way where you expect these outlaws to be tough outlaws like Jed and Clay, but they're sort of nonviolent. They've never even fired a gun. You know, like on the fringes of satire in a way, but it's just not that invested in that stuff. And it's just trying to be sort of a fun, colorful funny western and it's easy to watch but it needs to try harder and i think people who've seen this once probably think oh yeah capaloo it's a great movie anybody who's seen it twice is like "Mm." (laughs) i mean it's it's a solid (laughs) script it has a decent sense of humor and it keeps it light enough you know it never gets too cringeworthy it almost feels like a sort of slapstick Howard Hawks type Western. I mean, Jane, like Jane Fonda is great in this, actually. I think she's really funny. It's clear she's having a lot of fun. She gets to wear these really great costumes. She gets to ride horses. She gets to rob a train. She gets to almost be hanged. It's fun to watch Jane Fonda in this and also to sort of just think about the fact that she's Henry Fonda's kid. Uh, I always get a kick out of just seeing her or Peter in any sort of Western situation. Henry never had to wear cowboy outfits as tight as Jane's in this movie, though. Her outfits are, I would say that they're not too outrageous, but they are definitely far tighter than anyone back then would have been wearing. They're so tailored. It's almost distractingly tailored. The way that the darts are on her shirt is so bizarre, like almost like a shelf bra darted into her like plaid shirt. (laughs) It's just weird. It's just weird from a costuming perspective. It just made me think that there's no way in hell you could ride a horse with clothes that tight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and it, you get a couple of rides out of it, and then you're definitely going to get holes in your thighs, like, been there. No, well, then there's also that scene where she's trying to seduce a dude, and she's in this really shiny dress that also sort of betrays the decade. But she does this really good, like, Mae West impersonation while she's doing it, and it actually, like, it's a really fun scene. Like, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, it's a little thin at the end of the day. Oh, Lee Marvin's in that amazing silver brocade outfit. That's the best outfit of the entire thing. Like all black and a steel-toed boots and like a white neckerchief scarf. He looks great. His eyeliner is amazing in that movie. His eyeliner is pretty solid. And in, in Four for Texas, I forgot, there's a really great gold brocade vest that Frank Sinatra gets to wear. So... There is some solid menswear that happens in some of these films as well. But I actually, it would have been really cool to have had this as a straightforward, serious Western. I think that Jane Fonda could have absolutely held her own. But, you know, it's clear that no one else thought that was going to be possible. And they kind of marred it with jokes. Even the jokes I like, I feel like are kind of unnecessary. Yeah, it, it feels like a step towards something, but not quite there. It's a step towards making a, a female an action hero. And she plans a train robbery, and it, it works out. And she's got her own gang of thieves. And, you know, we're getting there. 1965, halfway through the decade, and women are starting to get to fire guns and be effective in a Western way that men traditionally are. So... It's a start. I'll give it that. I'll say it's a start. Eight out of ten eyeliners. Mostly just for Jane Fonda. You never forget it's Jane Fonda. Yeah. 
you definitely never feel like here's a woman from 1874. Her eyeliner is too perfect. Her hair is too perfect throughout this entire thing. And her face is too perfect in general. It's not fair. It's an unfair standard for women to live up to. The next film. (laughs) The Ballad of Josie, in which we slide back all the way to 1961 as far as progressiveness goes. Uh, 1967, though. A story to Directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin. The only real Western director we deal with this episode. He did so many Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne Westerns. And this doesn't feel much like a Western, but at least he's a legit Western director. The screenplay in this is written by Harold Swanton, who was a 50-year-old man in the 60s, taking a humorous look at feminism. (laughs) (laughs) And he, I think he mostly wrote for TV. I don't think he was really anyone. <laughs> I really, like, in retrospect, I couldn't remember which was which between The Ballad of Josie and The Second Time Around. Me Despite too. the six-year difference, like in 67, we really should be a lot closer to some progressive action here. But this movie is not it. Starring Doris Day, who, you know, I guess I think part of the issue is that she looked so much like Debbie Reynolds or Debbie Reynolds looks so much like her <laughs> that yeah like I'm also having a hard time remembering what the difference was but this one has a really really cheesy theme song that sounds like an 80s sitcom opening so there's that <laughs> if we didn't watch four for Texas this would easily be the worst movie we watched for this episode I kind of don't hate this movie what? Okay, defend that position, please. You have Doris Day in like a Bridget Bardot beehive hairdo, starting a cattle ranch on her own so that she can prove herself to be self-sufficient and win back the custody of her children after uh, she mistakenly kills her abusive drunk husband. He falls down the stairs. Then, of course, all the men in town charge her with murder And so she's just sort of spends the rest of the film trying to strike out on her own and just keep her kid because the father-in-law wants to take custody of their child and all the men are out to get her and she just won't let it happen. I don't know. Doris Day, like, she's really cute in this. Even if it's like this depressing, she's like over the hill, uh, you know, apparently in this film, which, which she isn't in real life but it's very clear that they're trying to push her into this like old mom role this is pretty close to the end of her career before she became a full-time animal activist you know she's never been a bombshell sort of leading lady but she's always been very likable and you always when there's a male lead who wants to like couple with her you're like yeah okay i can see that But in this one, we've got Peter Graves, who's the biggest asshole in the world, and we're supposed to want him to get with her. If we want to talk about how true these movies are to the time period that they're supposed to be set in, like, I feel like this one might qualify as pretty accurate because there's a lot of male chauvinism that's not explained. Like, why is it bad to raise sheep in Cattleland? 
Uh, because men said so. Why can't a woman run a, a ranch? Because men said so. Like, it all seems like sort of accurate in terms of its misogyny and male centrism, but it never, like, tries to make that work for a 60s audience. And I think that's why this movie is all but forgotten. The sort of the thing that I liked about this is that there is this weird undercurrent that the film actively tries to swat down. And yet Doris Day is saying lines about like, forget I'm a woman, I'm a human being, I can take care of myself. And I'm not going to wait around for a man to rescue me and nobody's going to get in my way. But she can only deliver these lines when she's drunk. And then she immediately falls over and then she wakes up super hungover and she's never been hungover before. So it's a cop out, you know, like she sort of talks big and then she has to get rescued by these guys. But then, as you said, it's like all of the drama is super contrived, like the fact that they're charging her for murder when the guy like fell down the stairs. And never mind the fact that everyone in town's like, yeah, he was a horrible drunk. We all hated him. Glad he's dead. But (laughs) screw that bitch for killing him. You know, it's like. It doesn't make any sense. and then, But it does. Like, it, it makes sense for the time, but it doesn't, watching it now, or even in the 60s, I would say. But even, like, so that she has these guys who are, are you know, telling her about what she can and can't do as far as, as you said, raising sheep and cattle land. And, like, the drama here ends up being, like, these guys who whip themselves into such a frenzy over the shit that they stirred up that she just kind of lets them just go fight each other while she goes off and like takes care of her business (laughs) (laughs) which of course then the whole film ends in this bizarre women's rights protest which also kind of it's weird because she like has a moment where she's like putting on jeans and then she's going there and she's doing things for herself and then this protest happens that she inspires directly and she's like oh my gosh you know like all these people are fighting in in the bedroom because of me, you know, and she has to sort of walk it back at the end. But, you know, it would have been kind of neat if they had just let it happen. It just keeps getting neutered by the testosterone that be. But I don't know. It it had some like kind of interesting moments. And I like Doris Day. I thought she just played it pretty natural. She wasn't as painful to watch as Debbie Reynolds, basically. (laughs) It might also be grading on a curve. It's true. Like, I think this is definitely a worse movie than the second time around, but Doris Day is more of an engaging performer than Debbie Reynolds is in that earlier film because she seems so out of time. She seems like a, you know, old Hollywood star, like being so over the top and clownish in this Western environment, whereas Doris Day kind of blends in a little bit more. She seems... She plays it a little more real. Well, she has more to fight for. Yeah. Because all the jokes in this movie, I mean, the jokes in this movie are horrendous because they're all just about men talking about how they want to hang her or beat her up. And then she just, she fights back. And like, I kind of, I appreciate that, even though it ends up being a little bit toothless in the end and predictable as far as these Doris Day movies go. But it wasn't the worst. She has a good all lavender outfit at one point. I found it hard to sit through this movie. I had to take it in chunks. <laughs> There's a cute little baby lamb scene in this movie. Oh, so much about where Doris Day ended up later in her career as an animal activist. It's like, oh, look at how adorable little baby animals are. And you're like, ah, that was nice. <laughs> oh. And I'm like, oh, that would taste really good, battered and fried. <laughs> Yeah. Just kidding. (laughs) 
<laughs> he's not kidding. Um, I guess that's all I have to say about that movie. Uh, four out of ten eyeliners. This is definitely not a eyeliner looking film. Mm-hmm. She's in some tight jeans and stuff like that, but it no, they're kind of baggy jeans actually. Yeah, I mean, in comparison to Capaloo, they're pretty baggy. But... <laughs> But she's definitely playing it like the straight old maid that she is. <laughs> Unfortunately, poor Doris Day. Yeah. How old is she in this? Like 35? <laughs> oh, she's 45 in this movie. All right. 45? Real old person. No, she's not. Do the math again. She's not 45. She was born in 22, a.k.a. an old maid. Wow. Well, I have to say that... Yeah, she looks so freaking amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's a very young-looking 45 in this, especially by 60s Hollywood standards. Uh, so now we've got the Bell Star story. What can I say? Love comes alone. I run away. But I will stay the day I see. Which is Lena Vertmuller. We're venturing into Europe now. The only spaghetti western ever directed by a female. Or at least so this movie is touted. It's got a lot of differences from your traditional spaghetti westerns, but it's also got some similarities. So I guess you can say that that might be true. It's not a very well-made film, but I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it, too. But I'll just say, full disclosure, that this is a full eyeliner, full cat eye, hot couture suit with a (laughs) wide-brim hat and, like, a Jane Asher haircut. Like, boom, boom, boom. 10 out of 10 eyeliners. Telling you right now. So get ready. (laughs) Pull on your boots. If you want proof about what Jenna's saying right now, Take a look at a picture of the real Bell Star, like the the actual historical Bell Star human being, and compare that to Elsa Martinelli playing her, <laughs> and uh, <Yeah>. and boy, <laughs> there's a huge difference. <laughs> Elsa Martinelli is basically the Catwoman version of the actual Bell Star, black leather everything with drawn on freckles. It's glorious. <laughs> The opening montage, now that we're in 1968, the opening montage of this that also includes a mediocre theme song, but it sounds this time like Nico. (laughs) It's actually Elsa Martinelli singing her own theme song, but it's this very like, true love has at last come to me kind of thing. And uh, it looks like Andy Warhol art. And it's also glorious. Loved it. The plot of Bell Star god knows god, <laughs> god knows what the fuck sounds like you're tossing that meatball over to me so uh, we begin the movie sort of it's a film sort of told out of order we begin the film with her playing she's a legendary gambler who travels through the old west gambling and winning lots of money she comes across this blackie in some town somewhere played by George Eastman, who's like the sleaziest looking guy you've ever seen. You've seen him in a bunch of things. He actually played like the gay boy toy in one of these OSS 117 movies we watched. But she's like, oh, I want this really slimy, sleazy looking guy. I'm going to throw this game so that he beats me in poker. And uh, he says, 
Okay, you have no money left. Double or nothing, you gotta sleep with me if you lose. And she, like, throws away three queens and ends up sleeping with this guy. And that's what I like about this movie. Like, it's really, like, cheaply made, terrible continuity, really, like, ugly... I mean, also the transfer we watched was pretty awful, but it definitely would be lost forever if it weren't for the fact that it's Lena Vertmuller who went on to make some great Italian classics, Swept Away, Seven Beauties, Love and Anarchy, a lot of great stuff. And this was because she was involved in this. It hasn't been forgotten, but it, it, it would have been swept under the rug. But I'm glad it has gotten some attention because there's some really crazy, like, psychosexual, bizarre stuff going on in this movie that I kind of wish it had been made better so it could have really explored some of these things. Like, she really, like, is drawn to these abusive relationships and the more violent things get, the more sexy they get. There's, it's very, like... Like sadomasochistic, ugly, weird sex shit going on in this movie. <laughs> and that makes this movie sound a lot better than it actually is, but it makes me like the movie more than I probably should. No, that's exactly what rocks about this movie. There's a handful of things I really liked about this movie, and they're all sort of about how it subverts expectations on both Westerns and what you're expecting is going to be essentially a softcore porn, quite frankly. Like, my expectations were not terribly high for this. And I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that it was a sadomasochistic softcore porn. <laughs> you know, she ends up in bed with this guy and she's planning on killing him and he sees it coming and he rips the gun from her and tries to essentially, you know, rapes her. But then she kind of gets into it. I don't know. It's one of those Italian things. There's this, like whole theme about how he's sitting here trying to tell you like oh you're pretending you don't like men but then later when we get this flashback we learn about her whole upbringing and how she basically when she was younger she was living with what is it her uncle yeah her uncle who killed her parents yeah, she, yeah. and then he sets her up with he's like i have a husband for you to marry and she's as a young girl is so excited, we get these really great scenes of her twirling with her like maids and she's in a white dress and we have, it's a great close up on all their faces with the background swirling around them. And she's so excited. Oh, I've always read about marriage or whatever. I've always heard about it. It's going to be wonderful. I'm so, oh, you're going to look so beautiful on your wedding day. And of course her husband shows up and he's this old ugly dude who's like 68 or something you know like totally not age appropriate and she's so disappointed and they're sitting there talking about her like she's uh you know horse to be broken kind of creepiness yeah and then she ends up stealing a gun to save her maid who's a native american girl from her uncle and who then and then later like that he accuses her because she doesn't want to sleep with him of doing something so they're going to hang her and so she kind of becomes this outlaw based on this traumatic experience never mind finding out her parents were killed by her uncle i did laugh at the name origin which is just such a cop out <laughs> <laughs> where it's like this big build up her name is mirabelle but she goes by bell and then this guy, Cole Harvey, that she knew as a kid and she runs into later on. And they have a meet cute where he steals her clothing because she's bathing in a lake, you know, just typical Italian stuff. And he's like, hmm, Mirabelle, what if we call you Bill? And it's like, oh, OK. And how about a last name? How about Star? 
And like, that's it. There's absolutely no rhyme or reason behind it. It's just like her literal name and then the word star. So the whole thing, you know, it actually has this kind of interesting backstory. She's always interesting whenever she is kissing Blackie, who he himself is always in these bizarre suits. And, you know, she does things like she shoots the heels off of his boots or she holds the gun on his chest while she's kissing him. Like there's a lot of these weird power moves that she does as often as someone tries to like call her a a horror girl for me to take to bed when I feel like, or whatever, you know, like there's all these awful lines being thrown at her, but she kind of brings the awfulness back and throws it right back at people and right in their faces. I also enjoyed, there's a scene where after she rescues her friend from being hung, she kills the sheriff who's riding after her. And there's this great line where in the narration, she says like, I knew his wife and kids, you know, and, but it was me or him. And I was like, man, that's like one of the few times I've ever heard a main character in a Western even consider the like family members of somebody that they shoot, (laughs) which I thought was kind of a cool touch, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, you're, you're getting in Bell star. You're not getting that in anything else. What I love is how the backstory for Bell star and, and her like whole history of this Cole Harvey guy is all of her, like, messed up psychosexual problems like why she needs an abusive man to get turned on or whatever is because her childhood buddy who she like betrays to save her maid steals his gun and then he gets mad and then tries to rape her and then the maid kills him and like she's pissed off because the maid killed the guy who was trying to rape her and it's like really crazy like Freudian explanation of why she's got all of these weird sexual hang-ups. That's great. (laughs) I love that. It really is great and typically you could throw out any rape scene in the vast majority of films and it's a better film for it and I won't say that the rape scenes are particularly great in this but I will say that they get weirdly justified in just, as you said, that the craziest, most out there way that wouldn't be so nutty for like a giallo or something. But for these spaghetti Westerns, it's like this bizarre mix of things. And the scene in the end where Blackie gets captured and then tortured is insane. It's so crazy. <laughs> They're like raking spurs across him and they pick out the bullets uh, from his body with a knife and the bad guy's playing a piano the whole time. It's so sexual. They throw whiskey on him and they light him on fire. He's got no it's shirt. Insane. Yeah, he has no shirt on. He's bleeding from everywhere, but it's so fetishized. <laughs> it's really, really <laughs> wild. And then it ends with this, like, her saving him, of course, and they're like, you know, it'll, it's always going to be this way with us. And you're like, wow, I'm so sorry, guys. Really sorry to hear that. <laughs> sorry you guys will never get over this, but for Lena Vertmuller, it's not that nutty. It actually makes quite a lot no, of sense. No, it's... <laughs> that was my happiest pleasure about this movie, was that I could definitely see Lena Vertmuller's touch in this, where it's not feminist, but it is willing to give you a really messed up, realistic, like, it's okay that women have these awful flaws that men have sort of 
version of feminism that Bert Mueller brings to a lot of her films. And you can totally see it in this one, and I like that about it. And that is definitely a portrait of women that you do not see in the 60s for the vast majority of these films. So, of course, the woman director gives us that. 10 out of 10 eyeliners. But you at least have to match that with Brigitte Bardot in Shalako, the next film we're going to talk about. Shalako. She is more 60s looking than even Elsa Martinelli in Bell Star, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, I fell asleep. What movie were we talking about? Shalako. I'm sorry, I fell asleep. What movie are we talking? Same year. <laughs> also, European Western. Sean Connery, who had said, I'm sick of this James Bond crap. I want to do something totally different. And he makes this <laughs> super boring Western called Shalako. <laughs> oh, my God. With the greatest theme song. Um, Another great theme song. It's a great theme song, but nothing else is great about this movie. Nothing else is great about this movie. I will say, actually, that this movie was the inspiration for this entire episode. (laughs) (laughs) I watched this so long ago because when I saw a screenshot of Brigitte Bardot on a horse looking exactly like 1960s pinup Brigitte Bardot with the full, (laughs) again, cat eye eyeliner you know, going up to her eyebrows. I was like, I have to see this movie. <laughs> this looks like the greatest Western I've ever seen. Uh, and it it's awful. It's just unrepentantly terrible. And so disappointing each time. <laughs> it's not even that it's terrible. Like, it doesn't feel like a shoddily made film. It just banks on our sympathy for these awful aristocratic assholes that have gone into the wilderness into the frontier to hunt whatever cougars coyotes whatever they're hunting and they get uh, they sort of run into some apaches who cause them some trouble but they're just such awful aristocrats that you don't care what happens to them i mean you've got some big name actors here i mean people whose faces i recognize jack hawkins is probably the most known of any of these aristocrats who've gone out on this hunting party which Brigitte Bardot as Countess Irina is one of them. They don't try very hard to make her somewhat more sympathetic than the rest of these creeps, but she goes out on her own to like shoot some coyotes or something, and Shalko has to rescue her from some Apache. Shalko is Sean Connery with, uh, you know, with full Scottish accent, like he doesn't even try <laughs> to do anything American, which I respect. That's there were fine. immigrants back then too. I don't know, is he a half-breed or something? They're like, there's something where he's very intimate with the Apaches, but he also is their enemy. It's never really that clear. It's too focused on these people in their hunting game on the western frontier in their tuxedos and making you not care what happens to them. And, you know, Woody Strode shows up as an Apache and has to do hand-to-hand battle with, with Sean Connery, and Sean Connery wins, and... I don't know. There's not not much to this movie, but it's not disliked. People seem to like this movie okay, I guess. 
Yeah, because Brigitte Bardot shows up like a lost David Bowie backup singer in a top hat in like a tight fitted tuxedo with these giant crosses around her neck shooting guns. I mean, like, that's great. That's the best part of the entire film. But there's that, as you said, that whole plot aspect. It is very hard to concentrate on this film. I I don't know. I mean, there must be something. I mean, you had some good theory about this being this anti-capitalist commentary, which was even more than I've ever gotten out of it. I mean, I feel like the things I remember about this film, having watched it not that long ago and twice now, I'm like, they they kill a couple of dogs, you know, like (laughs) I remember all of Bridget Bardot's uh, outfits, but that's all I got. Shalako means raining. There is some commentary here, like all of these rich jerks who are out in the wild. Well, there's that whole scene with Honor Blackman. They like rape her and they kill her, the all of the Native Americans, and then they make her swallow her silver necklace that she tries to bribe them mm. with. I mean, I guess like there is a kind of interesting nihilistic message here that wouldn't be not at home in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And this idea that, like, your society and your money can't save you from the West. There is some deep social commentary here that is completely lost on the director, Edward Dimitrik, who actually is responsible for some amazing movies. The Cane Mutiny, Young Lions, which I know you like, Walk on the Wild Side. Mirage. You know, he's... Well, Good movie. But... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Warlock. Warlock is good. He's done some great films, but he does not know how to do social commentary, I guess, because he tries to make us care about these awful people, and we don't. And the Apaches are definitely supposed to be more sympathetic than they are, and we don't care about them either, and we don't. There's some sexual tension between Sean Connery and Brigitte Bardot, and I guess that's sort of sexy a little bit, because she's slightly less shallow and capitalistic than the rest of her cohorts she can connect to shalako a little bit and they you know run off together in the end or they're the only survivor <laughs> oh spoiler but <laughs> if you care about shalako <laughs> every single person in this entire movie dies except for sean connery and brigitte bardot and they're like oh i guess we should keep hanging out Yeah, I mean, I rarely am so dismissive of a film, but I would say that you're better off just Googling Brigitte Bardot, Shilako, as I like to call it, and just looking at how ridiculous she looks in this movie, and then YouTube the theme song. And that's it. You're pretty good. Like, you might feel tempted to watch it. Don't. 10 out of 10 eyeliners. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not any less than Elsa Martinelli and Belle Star, but I I would say it actually surpasses her 60s-ness. It's just Brigitte. Everyone else, like Sean Connery is in like all suede, which I guess is sort of echoing the 70s coming, but... Apparently he grew this giant mustache for the role and Dimitri made him shave it off. (laughs) It would have been great, especially with her bizarre church tuxedo top hat she looks like Willy Wonka I love it (laughs) (laughs) woodwear it's a good look if I'm ever out in Monument Valley or Almeria Spain substituting as the Old West I definitely will make sure I'm dressed like Brigitte Bardot in (laughs) Shalico in all black (laughs) like long sleeve long pants 
Me too. Honestly. Where did she get the hair dye? Where'd she get the bleach? How did she make her hair that big? Oh my god. Out in the frontier. She probably has an armadillo in there. Just like brush the hair over it. Well, I have to say our next film, 100 Rifles with Raquel Welch. one of the bombiest bombshells of the 60s she probably doesn't get such a huge eyeliner score from you on this movie definitely not i wouldn't think she's kind of dirty and kind of looks the role i mean she's got a terrible accent but she has a dopey accent she has perfect eye makeup and false eyelashes and bleached hair with the roots clearly growing in but not so much eyeliner i thought she looked exactly like a yucky Indian living in Mexico in 1883. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so did Burt Reynolds, right? Because he's the other one who's starring in this. And this is 1969, directed by Tom Grease. Another TV director. Yeah, this is definitely in the spaghetti western style, and it was shot in Europe, but it's an American-produced film. But it's got that gritty, like... You're going to see a lot of people die. And it just looks kind of ugly, gritty, grainy. Almeria, Spain, where all these last three movies were shot, were all in the same spot in Spain where a lot of the spaghetti westerns were filmed. It just makes the Old West seem really bleak, all these westerns that are, are shot here. That's the one thing that Europe doesn't have on us is that we have like a beautiful West. <laughs> Even our deserts are beautiful. <laughs> and uh, they just got dirty old Spain. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. The plot of this one, Burt Reynolds is half Yaki Indian. His name is Joe. <laughs> uh, he robs a bank. <laughs> there is a sheriff named Lie Decker, who's played by Jim Brown, who is pursuing him. And the two of them, while trying to run from this evil general Verdugo who is uh, Fernando Lamas they end up getting involved in this whole it's like a civil war situation right sort of a revolution yeah the Yaqui Indians are fighting back against the Mexican government who are trying to put them in their place and uh, they're just too uppity too rowdy and the bad guy in this this Verdugo He's sort of your typical way too evil, awful to be believed. Like there's nothing human about this guy. So all you want is for our three leads, Jim Burton, Raquel, to gun him down and all of his minions. And that's what happens with these 100 rifles that Burton Reynolds robs a bank to buy. There's not a whole lot to the story, it's a little disappointing in that respect because you definitely are on the, the side of the Yaqui and there's a like definitely a pro-indigenous people message here, but it just turns into a shoot 'em up you know, high body count, kill as many people as absolutely possible sort of Western. I liked it. <laughs> I mean, it's not a great movie, but after all of these other pretty terrible movies that aren't 
entertaining in any sort of traditional way. It was nice to see this sort of more traditional shoot 'em up western where it's like here are three fairly likable leads and we want to see them succeed and see a lot of bloodshed. I didn't mind it. I actually thought Raquel Welch, I've seen her in a few things and I've never thought of her as much of an actor, but she does a pretty good job. I mean, her accent is not very convincing, but otherwise she takes the role really seriously and I feel like she's the only female gunslinger in any of these movies that actually feels like an actual human being like somebody who would actually raise up arms and shoot people the rest of them just seem like oh let's try and figure out a way to have a a woman with a gun shooting people and it never is very convincing but Raquel Welch as a yucky Indian I bought it I bought it in a way I definitely didn't with any of these other characters Raquel Welch won me over with Myra Breckenridge I think she's actually (laughs) I I think that she was done dirty by the fact that she was too attractive and nobody ever wanted to give her a real role with any meat because she actually steps up to the plate when she's allowed to and I yeah she was pretty decent in this the whole violence bit at the end I it really kind of lost me because it it was too pointless like you said the bad guys are so bad and then the good guys are a little bit unknown we get this sort of scene at the yaki uh indian camp and we meet all the little children who are running around and you are clearly more sympathetic towards them than anybody else but then we're meant to be following burt reynolds and jim brown and it's like neither of them care about what's happening that's like part of the plot they're like kind of doing their own thing that sort of han solo style like it's not my my problem you know and then of course they get pulled in because of the pretty lady and plot wise it didn't do anything for me i mean this movie is definitely very 1969 there's a lot of free love in this movie there burt reynolds gets introduced by waking up next to like a wet butt (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and like this totally naked chick who he clearly uh, just banged and then he immediately shames her by exposing her naked body to the world on the balcony. There is some interracial romance between Jim Brown and Raquel Welsh. That's very progressive. Is this the first interracial love scene in a Hollywood film? I've heard it said, but I don't know how true that is. It definitely was progressive for the time. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was the first kiss. I'm not sure. After Star Trek's kiss, I stopped paying attention. (laughs) There's definitely some sweaty intimacy between a black man and a white woman playing a native Central American woman. Who was really Latino in real life, so comes around. And it's also significant for the fact that Raquel Welsh has a wet t-shirt contest scene where she is meant to be taking a shower in front of an entire train of troops. And she does that thing that men think women do, where she like washes her boobs very specifically, as if that's like a part of the shower process, where you're just like, let me just wash these boobs. But men love it, apparently. If you Google this movie, that's the first thing you'll find. It's, uh, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> Raquel Welch's boobs do defeat the entire Mexican army, so... <laughs> they do! It's that. actually a solid sneak attack. <laughs> she distracts them, and then the the entire Yaki troop uh, descends, essentially, so, you know. Plus, um, it has a kind of interesting ending that... Should we spoil it? We spoiled every other film that we've talked about, but... <laughs> 
I'll leave it at the fact that it's a little bit more interesting and a little more heartfelt than you expect. And you kind of get the sense that all of the indifferent characters then become more radicalized at the end, which feels, again, like a pretty 69 kind of message, uh, not in the sex way, but in the year way. There is definitely a social conscience in this movie. It doesn't come through as strongly as maybe it should, but uh, there are definitely some people involved who feel like, uh, you know, there, there are some problems with society that could be improved by Raquel Welch's boobs. <laughs> you know, it really, in that sense, like it really does embody 1969 activism, <laughs> the worst of it, at least, where it is like, yeah, like those those kids are having a revolution and, and go them uh, and sex is great. You know, like that's it. Like that's about all you get from this film. So if you want like some minor sex and a bunch of violence and you want to like leave and, and think like, you know, maybe I should buy like a suede jacket with a fringe, you know, like that. This is the film to inspire mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Five out of 10 eyeliners. Yeah, that's fair. I have to admit that I wasn't necessarily focused on the eye makeup necessarily, even though I knew that was what you had in mind. I was more watching it for the portrayal of women and how they try and work women into the Old West in a sort of action-y sort of way. And on that level, 100 Rifles seemed most convincing to me. But, you know, I, I like that they were trying, and it follows kind of a progression from 61 to 69. It's like baby steps getting there a little bit but you know let's not forget about how audiences love boobs <laughs> that's the thing that kind of bummed me out is that you know i mean I, I definitely went into this with the shallow pursuit of laughing at people with a bunch of makeup in the desert but i ended up getting kind of an interesting mix of women-led westerns that as most women westerns <laughs> go especially in this earlier period and and before end up being actually decent scripts if only they could get over the fact that a woman is the lead you know like they, they all of these women are talented actually i would all happily go go ahead well i don't know about elsa martinelli but <laughs> i would say the vast majority of these women at least have, have some level of competence and could have been pretty cool in a, a more serious Western and, or I mean like jokes, a better comedy where the jokes are actual real written jokes and not just jokes about like, look at that woman in pants, you know, like that kind of stuff, which is dopey for the sixties even. I mean, hilarious or hilarious. So it's a little bit sad in a way, I guess to see what could have been versus what we got, which is a bunch of really forgettable stuff that makes men walk away and say women suck women can't carry movies like and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of well look at the shit you gave (laughs) and you know i also think it's very telling that the only movie here that was co-written and directed by a woman is definitely the most interesting which isn't to say that it is the most progressive it certainly buys into all of the tropes that are set up that we expect especially from italian films during this time in spaghetti westerns of all films but there is something to be said about having that bizarre space in which you get to have this dirty gritty woman who if bell star was a male protagonist you wouldn't bat an eye so that kind of stuff is actually kind of neat and the same thing with Capaloo, that story is really good. I think that the story is sort of dark and sad and 
it doesn't have a fun ending. And there's a lot of these like setups for what you think is going to be a typical Hollywood rah-rah kind of film that gets undercut by just how terrible all of the men around the cat are and how little power she has to fix things on her own. So in that sense, it's also, it's, it is a really interesting film, but you know, they undercut it with a bunch of good and bad comedy. (laughs) Yeah. And also this, this sort of, it's there. I don't know. Everything feels patronizing. I think that's really just the right word. It's not that anyone's Mm -hmm. performance is so terrible, but it's they're They're being, patronized by the filmmakers and they're being patronized by the scripts and and it's a bummer but if you can like watch these and sort of envision what could have been like they end up being a lot more fun except for shalako (laughs) and four for texas and four for texas which never would have been good yeah that could never have been anything the biggest disappointment in all these movies is that at the end of all of them they these gun-toting women who flout their roles in society end up giving up their guns for their men and that that kind of sucks a hundred rifles there's it might be the only one of any of these where that doesn't happen and uh it's not a good movie it's pretty boring it really kind of dissipates a good cast but i respect it for that reason but it's 69 so we're you know heading into the 70s where you know, we were burning our bras and uh, things were looking better. So would you say that the Wild West was, in fact, more progressive than the 1960s? I think that's what I just realized. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's this idea that women on the frontier were tough and it's, you know, there are Hollywood producers who are trying to figure out how to work that into the 60s western you know as you know to show some spirit of progressivism as far as the roles of women are concerned but they don't quite get it right it's all kind of slick and hollywoodized and doesn't really give much of a sense of the reality of the situation the real bell star was very different on our website can we have pictures side by side elsa martinelli next to the real bell star absolutely the women who lived on the frontier in the Wild West and had to... Had to grow their own sheep in the cattle <laughs> ranch and had to string up their own men for psychosexual torture and had to kill their own uncles and win back their children after they killed their drunken husbands and then wash their boobs in front of a entire train <laughs> of attacking Mexican soldiers. That, to me, is true. True American freedom. None of this housewife shit. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.